0: You're listening to The Savings Tip Jar, hosted by Dom Beattie and Harrison Asprey. Powered by InfoChoice, your choice of financial news, guides and product comparison.
1: G'day, how you doing? Yes, you are listening to The Savings Tip Jar podcast with myself, Dom Beatty, And as always, Harrison Asprey, here to talk about all the latest happenings in the financial world in Australia. Has how you been this week? Yeah, great. Thanks for asking, Dom.
2: Um, Back on the morning gym grind, so I'm feeling a bit sore this that's morning. The way. Um, oh, but yeah, you. you know, trying to get fit for summer, summer bod. Get that summer bod, um, get shredded. Yeah, you know, as they say, that's an investment, you know, not an expenditure.
1: What's the thing? Get shredded for stereo.
2: Shredded for stereo, yeah. Rest in peace to the homeboys is. Um, yeah, it you know, the world's not the same without you. Man, um there's some
1: but niche bodybuilding.com references. Away at the start from of this podcast.
2: Uh, away from <laughs> you know, quadriceps and and whatnot uh let's talk about some finance so um i thought we should mention uh, today's guest upcoming is uh kate campbell so she's the author of uh buying happiness learn to invest your time and money better and also host of the australian finance podcast which you may have seen doing the rounds uh so yeah she's here to talk about uh her new book um and sort of money mindsets and things like that it's Mm -hmm. sure to be a good one um but yeah without further ado let's uh Talk about some news, and probably the most newsworthy thing is it's been a pretty quiet week for news, but there's still been a few tidbits. So, just uh, yesterday, actually, the uh, home guarantee scheme uh, it was revealed supported one in three first home buyers last financial year. So, this story here is from Brooke uh, on InfoChoice. So, close to 25,000 homes were purchased through the first home guarantee over the past 12 months to the 30th of June, uh, while more than 5,000 were bought using the regional first home guarantee, Dom. So these are the schemes that allow you to um, buy a home with a 5 or mm. even a 2% deposit uh, without paying lender's mortgage insurance. And it's uh, like essentially the government acts as guarantor. But um, I thought it was pretty uh, surprising that they were supporting, you know, one in three first home buyers. Um, mm. It's up from one in seven to, the past financial year prior. Um, and it's also, I guess, noteworthy to mention that 12% uh, have transitioned out of that, Uh, low LVR or high LVR rather um, state so they now have more than 20% 20 equity in their home so uh, what did you make of that Dom and um, yeah do first home buyers need these sort of government support schemes just to buy a home these days?
1: Uh, yeah, well, that's a tricky question to answer in itself, but uh, I mean, I thought I'd, for those that don't know, just give a quick um, explain of, of, of what this uh, this scheme's all about and how it works. Really, the, the main saving there is is you're saving on uh, lender's mortgage insurance, mm. because, so it allows you to basically buy a, uh, a, a home with only a 5% deposit. Now, as we know, um, you know, you typically, uh, if you have less than twenty percent deposit, are charged uh, for lenders' mortgage insurance, uh, which can be many thousands of dollars. Yeah. But this scheme, yeah, that's um, it's obviously saving a lot of people. So a lot of people are taking advantage of that. Um, it's allowing them to get into the property soon, the property market sooner, um, instead of having to wait, you know, several years to save up that twenty percent mm. deposit. They're thinking, hey, you know what? Through this scheme. I can uh, get into an affordable property with just uh, you know saving. Maybe it only took them about a year to save up a five percent deposit for uh, say a five hundred thousand dollar property. Mm. Um, uh, whether it's a good thing uh, is it you know addressing the problem of housing affordability? I don't know. There's a lot of people that argue yeah. that these sorts of things um, increase demand further, thereby driving mm. up the, the cost of uh, of, of of buying property in Australia. Uh, it's the whole thing, supply demand. you know, mm. if you're increasing demand without increasing supply, uh, yeah, that's gonna drive up prices mm. naturally. So yeah, uh, but um, you know, I, I guess largely I'm kind of somewhat supportive of it. Um, if it's without the scheme that we'd have much lower numbers of 1st home buyers mm. uh, in the market uh, to, to buy a property, so. Yeah, it's, it's helping people now, but whether, yeah, we really need to, to be increasing supply at the same time, mm-hmm. I'd say. Moving on to uh, another topic. Now for all you last minute Larry's, uh, it's worth remembering that the uh, ATO tax return deadline is looming. So we are in October uh, and the 31st of October is the deadline for Spooky. submitting your, um, your, your tax return if you are lodging yourself of course if you are using an accountant you actually have until the 15th of may 2024 wow. so it definitely gives you a huge extension i wish uh, those kind of extensions were available back when i was in high school or at university submitting assignments i was <laughs> yeah. uh, like oh if you submit it through this uh no professional 10 month we will give you this huge extension yep yeah. but no um now a lot of people obviously put off uh, submitting their tax return uh, because they are expecting a big tax debt mm. there have been a lot of people who were caught off guard uh, you know expecting their usual juicy fat tax refund and then finding shock horror they've got you know thousands of dollars uh, that they apparently owed the, the tax office perhaps they were expecting a big tax refund because you know in the previous the last Two mm. or three years, we had the uh, the Lamington, the mm. Lamito, the low to middle income tax offset, yep. uh, which was you know giving people thousands of dollars in, in refunds. That's no longer in place anymore. Uh, and you've also got um, you know hex debts have obviously gone up quite a bit yeah, because true. they are linked to inflation. So some people who have an existing hex debt are finding that um, yeah they have to pay a lot more uh, in off their debt. When they submit their the tax return, so I mean, what you can do log log into the, the ATO into MyGov, um, and you can you get a re- general tax estimate. So you can mm. generate an estimate without actually lodging it, and you can see, you know, whether you're expected to uh, pay pay off a debt or receive a, a nice nice refund, which are always fun to receive. Um, if you are anticipating, if if it does, you know, show that you're going to have to pay a huge debt. Don't freak out too much. Maybe if you wanna delay that, maybe you consider registering uh, to lodge it through an accountant where you have until the 15th of May, mm. 2024. So maybe giving you a bit more time to save up the money. Um, also keep in mind that uh, you can actually uh, register for a payment plan. So yeah. you, the ATO is not demanding that money immediately or they come over and break your legs. <laughs> uh, you can register for some sort of payment plan. Can't remember exactly how that works, whether it's like you know once a month, or once a quarter, um, split up over one or two years. Yeah, it's pretty flexible. Um, yeah, it could make it a little bit easier for you to for you to pay off, so there are options there definitely. Yeah.
2: I I think it's interesting too like um like the interest rates on savings accounts and term deposits are a lot higher, so that could have eaten into the ability to get a tax refund. Um oh, yeah. so if you You're have you know, a yep. like a savings account that's paying 5%, um, that's tax like the interest earned on that is taxed as regular mm. income, so a lot of people might not have known that yeah I had a um actually had a I think it was a two thousand dollar tax bill a few years ago um and yeah to your point Dom like it's pretty like the ATO is pretty chill at the end of the day as long as you know everything's above board you can do a uh, payment plan usually, mm-hmm. um, and I think I was paying off like 200 bucks a fortnight or something. Oh, okay. and, um and that wasn't because I couldn't pay; it it's just like, well, I figure that money is better in my pocket now, and
1: yeah, earning um, interest, earning
2: interest on a savings account or whatever. Um, and then yeah, you just give them the bare minimum, essentially. So um, yeah, so not a good time for a lot of uh, taxpayers out there. But yeah, look, you really need to get your skates on if you haven't uh, submitted your. Uh, Tax lodgings yet because, uh, yeah, you have until Halloween 31st of October. Otherwise, oh, you might right. face a spooky <laughs> fine. now I get your 300 reference bucks. at the start. <laughs> <there>. Yeah, <laughs> um, I totally forgot about Halloween. Yeah, keep an eye out for that. But mm. yeah, look, let's get into our bread and butter. So, uh, interest rate wraps. So uh, over the past week, uh, let's talk about some uh, term deposit and home loan wraps. Uh, so this one here is delivered from uh, Harry at Savings. Au. So uh, TD rates are generally back up again uh, in what was a quiet week. So uh, the likes of AMP and Bank of Sydney uh, increased term deposit rates. Uh, so Bank of Sydney is actually back at five point two five percent per annum for twelve months, uh, which you know they've yo-yoed with rates for so many weeks now. It's hard to get a bead on what they're really thinking, Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, I think just yesterday NAB cut rates on uh, a lot of term deposits actually by 10 basis points. Uh, So the 12 months rate is now 4.75% per annum, which is kind of pretty good for a big bank, but um, not competitive with the rest. Um, So if you look on um, savings.com.au, you'll see that the highest rate actually is, uh, for 12 months, is offered by Bank of Sydney at 5.25. Um, And if we look across to uh, home loan rates now, so the likes of Macquarie uh, and My State Bank uh, varied, primarily fixed home loan rates uh, this week. Um, And then other customer-owned banks uh, to vary rates this week were Bank First and Great Southern Bank. So uh, a lot of attention was given to uh, fixed-rate home loans, probably as Mm -hmm. a bit of a crystal ball into what the banks and markets are thinking, um, that rates will be in the next you know, few months or whatever if, if the RBA decides to hike the cash rate again. Um, but I thought it was interesting too, the only um, bank in our home loan wrap uh, to actually increase variable rates is Bank First. So that's um, one of the one of the smaller customer-owned banks out there, but um, still noticeable. Um, and I thought I should give a plug to uh, savings.com.au as well where you can compare home loan and TD rates. Um, hmm. So I mentioned the uh, highest uh, 12 month term deposit rate was mm. Bank of Sydney Dom at 5.25 um, and if we actually uh, switch to home loans so the lowest owner occupier rate um, is from RSCQ Bank so the huge uh, motor and club in Australia has a banking division um, and this rate is 5.34% wow. uh, with a 6.11% uh, percent per annum comp rate comparison rate um, and it's actually fixed for 5 years uh, with 60% LVR so I think, targeted at at people Mm. who are refinancing, who have a bit of equity. Um, But the kicker is it's for Queensland customers only. So you gotta be a a cane toad to make (laughs) advantage of that. So yeah, uh, a bit of a subdued week, Dom. Um, Mm. But yeah, still some great rates to be found.
1: Yeah, I was uh, having a look at um, just the rates available across um, the Savings Company U database just uh, earlier this week. Um, And I find quite interesting it seems that um, you, you, banks seem to be offering higher rates on one and two year um, mm. term deposits compared to the you know, three, four, five year. Mm. Usually, I mean, the. Generally, the, the general rule is the longer the the term deposit, the the higher the rate on offer because you're willing to part with your rates for a longer time in mm, return for, for a higher, uh, for a higher interest rate. But that's not the case at the moment. And um, you know the RBA released uh, their data just yesterday actually on what the average term deposit rates were over September. Hmm. The, the the average one year term deposit rate, for example, uh, is 4.5 percent. Um, hmm. While the the average three year uh, term deposit rate was four percent, so that's that's uh, yeah, 50 basis points of difference there. So it seems that I don't know why, but the banks seem to only be wanting shorter terms than the longer term. Mm. Perhaps because you know, in the the three, four, five year horizon, they're expecting the RBA to cut interest rates at some yeah. point
2: seen that in my, in my role as a research analyst for InfoChoice. So just all the banking product data that comes through every month we compile a report. Um, and yeah, the the rates are kind of converging because it's kind of been flipped on its head, you know, longer term, especially in the home loan space, longer term rates were higher because a lot of customers were willing to, you know, part with more, more money on interest uh, if it meant rate certainty. But now that's kind of, yeah, it's um, kind of going the opposite way. Um, and so that kind of, yeah, it kind of gives a good crystal ball into the into the market mm. what banks think the RBA will do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a bit of a losing game to be honest. Like if you're trying to outsmart a bank and its a team of you know product <laughs> managers and whatever, um, yeah, think again. Um, it's, yeah, yeah which is why so many yeah. people go with variable because like a bit of. Um, well, primarily, that's, that's where our, our banks offer competitive rates is variable, mm. but then it's like, oh, it's too hard to try and time the market with a mm. good fixed rate or whatever. So who knows?
1: All right. Time for an update on the latest news in the Australian property market. And joining us, as always, to discuss is the editor of Your Investment Property magazine, Emma Duffy. G'day, Emma. How are you Hey,
3: good. Thanks for having me again.
2: Yeah. So Emma... Um, New edition of the magazine out. Uh, yes. Congrats! It's always a hustle to get that one out uh, on time, and it looks great as always. Um, so, I understand um, there's been a bit of a been a bit of talk about a about Victoria's property tax recently. Mm-hmm. So, just give us a bit of a burst on that.
3: Yeah, it feels like every time I hop on this podcast, I'm talking about yet another property yeah. tax.
1: And it's usually out of Victoria. Out
3: of oh. Victoria. Yeah, last time I was here, we it was a 7.5% Airbnb levy. Um, this week, the Victorian government announced that they'll be expanding their existing vacant residential land tax. So currently, this tax exists only for empty residential properties mm. in Melbourne's inner and middle suburbs that have been vacant for over six months and tax is charged at 1% of the capital-improved value of the taxable land. Now, this tax is self-reported. It's important to note um, it's not actually enforceable. Um, So last week, uh, Victorian Treasurer Tim Pallas announced the government would be expanding this tax to include the entire state in a bid to improve housing supply. So the period that properties can be deemed vacant will start on the 1st of January next year, and the change will then take effect from January the 1st, 2025. Now, Palace has assured that holiday homes and properties under renovation will be exempt from this. Mm. Um, The tax will also be expanded to include vacant residential land that's been unimproved for more than five years, in established Melbourne suburbs. And this change will come into effect from January the 1st, 2026. And this policy is also um, going to apply to state government agencies that are holding a vacant residential land. Hmm. So, unsurprisingly, uh, investors and property groups are not too happy about this. Oh, really? It's so Shock, like, horror, right? Relax. I mean, the Greens have come out in support of it, of course. Um, they did say that they... that it shouldn't be self-reported and they want to see it be enforced and they also want to see it taxed at a higher percentage. Um, So you can't keep everybody happy, I suppose. But yeah, investors and property groups are, of course, not happy with it. RAIV CEO Quinton Killian said that it's a short-sighted policy and it will ultimately drive investors out of the state. And this seems to be the general consensus among Um, investors. So they're again, annoyed at being told what they can and can't do with their properties, which to be like, I can understand that I'm not an investor, but I do sort of understand. I see that side of it. But to be completely honest, I don't really see the problem with this policy. I think it makes a lot of sense. We do have a huge housing crisis, a massive imbalance of demand versus supply. And we need to fix that problem. So I think that if you're land banking, if you're holding vacant land or a vacant property and just holding on to that and not using it to shelter people that need, you know, a house to live in, mm. um, then I think that you should be taxed for it. I think that is pretty, pretty fair. To be totally honest, um, it will. It is interesting because REA did release an article this morning, and they've said they've had an influx of industry professionals who've said that they're now starting to receive more calls um, each week from people who are desperate to either lease out or sell their vacant holiday houses.
1: Mm. I thought you said holiday homes work.
3: Well, that's that. That's the thing. I was going to mention that because,
1: yeah.
3: Yeah. So, it applies to a property used and occupied by the owner as their holiday home for at least four weeks in a calendar year. So, it has to mm. meet that criteria. Oh. So yeah, and I think it's also um investors are also now thinking about selling to avoid the seven point five percent Airbnb levy. Mm. So I think it's both of these taxes that are now sort of freaking out some investors in the market and they're predicting an influx of um holiday homes to hit the auction market this summer. So
1: it, No, I usually don't like extra taxes. I don't think you know, more of a the carrot than the stick yep. kind of guy. But um I mean, I, I do hear things, you know, for example, where, where I live down the Gold Coast, um, there's these, uh, these these really fancy, they're called the Jewel Apartments in, in Broadbeach, and mm. um, they were built a couple of years ago, but uh, one of them has just been sat completely, one of the buildings, the three of them, one of them has just been sat completely empty, mm. um, has not been, no properties listed for sale on the markets so or nothing rented out. Um, and usually, you know, before these places are built, you can buy them off the plan, you can buy these apartments. Op- yeah. But, uh, you know, I read somewhere that, um, you know, it's a, introducing another tax uh, for property investors in Victoria, you know, isn't exactly going to incentivize more people to enter the, the property mm. investment game. And, and we understand, you know, we, we kind of, we need more property investors to provide more rental properties because yeah. state governments aren't great at, at providing uh, housing. So, I mean, how's that going to, how's that going to help with the additional rentals that need to be supplied in the, in the property market, because I understand there's been some research revealing how much needs to be done there.
3: Yeah, there was a domain rent report that came out last week, I believe. Uh, they found that there's an additional 700,000 rentals that are needed to balance out the property market. So mm. this policy could go some way towards helping that um, by releasing stock to you know renters who would otherwise be renters who would then go on to buy um, a property but yeah, I think only time will really tell to see if this is going to work or not. Yeah, um, yeah and the same domain report found that um, the cost of renting a unit has is now the same as renting a house in Australia after a 23.7% surge uh, in the last year alone in prices, which is just... Crazy. Um, so there's yeah record breaking ten consecutive quarters of house rental price growth and nine quarters of unit rental price growth. And Brizzy, um, our home state, is now the second most expensive capital city to rent an apartment in jointly hmm. with Canberra at five fifty a week. Right. Um, so yeah, it's um it's an interesting time for the rental market. That's for
2: sure. It's come full circle, hasn't it? Brisbane used to be one
1: of the cheaper ones, yeah. and now mm-hmm. yeah, nearly the. Well, yeah, it just doesn't seem that long ago that we were talking about an oversupply of of, uh, apartments in Brisbane and just rental properties and our rents were going down for a a year or two. I think this was Mm. back in like 2016, 2017. Mm. About that, uh, people were worried about that, yeah, there was a supply glut.
3: Mm, I remember
1: that, yeah. And then like all, not just apartment prices, but even house prices would, would, would be tumbling soon because of it. So people were waiting for this this big property crash because once all these apartments, everyone's going to want to live in a high rise apartment rather than a maker block. Out and yeah, stuff.
2: I was I was definitely a beneficiary of yeah. the tail end of that supply glut. Yeah, um, you know, I was paying three thirty five a week. Wow. Um, but when I left, um, it was rented out for three eighty five, and I think I saw it recently rented out for four thirty a week, and that's yeah. just for a one bedroom. So
1: actually, no, yeah, I was I also was a beneficiary. I, we we were renting for. a three years this little apartment um one better one bathroom for yeah 310 a week um and i went through the property history and the last tenants were paying i think it was 350 a week yeah so this was yeah this was uh back in 20 because 2016 i think end oh, I of 2016 wait. we started that so i think yeah back in like 2015 it was I, a couple of people would be willing to pay 310 mm. for that place because it was it was tiny it was infested with rats it was above a um, a fish and chip shop and a bakery Yeah, <laughs> uh, all sorts of smells wafting up delicious. there's like back to the the tax there's
2: a bit in that um, so like I can understand why you know would-be investors are kind of a bit angry um, but to me it just seems like a bit of a lazy tax like it's I don't think it's going to be Um, it's it's not going to hit the the people that they're intending to hit you know like a lot of people who bank land are property property developers who Mm -hmm. are kind of who would just see that as a cost of doing business and will just pay the tax or um, my theory is it could you know concentrate property investment further like it just means like the people who can't afford this tax will continue to pay and they could you know snap up some properties that are going to be put on the market Mm -hmm. by the so-called you know mum and dad investors who might have like one who can't afford the seven and a half percent or who are turned off by all this regulation um, but at the same time too like it's it's about unlocking supply like it's you know it's generally for an everyday investor it's not a very good idea to have your property vacant mm. you know you want to get tenants in for cash flow and yeah. things like that so you know kind of forcing their hand to get tenants in uh, has a two-pronged effect so um, but On the Airbnb side of it, is it possible to get taxed twice? So, if you have a holiday home and then it's vacant for most of the year, is it possible to get taxed twice? A bit of a tough one.
3: Yeah, a little bit of a tough one. I don't know exactly. I'd have to look into that a bit further. Um,
2: Because, like, there's, you know, I know someone who has a holiday home down in Geelong who is probably going to be pretty Mm. pissed off right now. But, yeah, it's essentially um, there's kind of a a growing case of, (coughs) of people who are, you know, they treat their holiday home as an investment property, they get the the rewards of having an investment property, you know, mm. and they claim interest on back on tax and things like that, but then they can enjoy it for their own purposes for like two yeah. weeks of the year or, you know, three yeah. weeks of the year. So to me it, it kind of makes sense, but then I can understand the other side of the coin yeah. as well. Um, so yeah, bit of controversy coming out of Victoria, who
1: Looking at what's going on, I mean, looking at the, the property price movements in mm. uh, Victoria, they uh, have have the slowest uh, property price growth at the moment. It's um it's about
3: point
1: mm. two point three percent per month. So you know that said, it's you know keeping costs down at yeah. the moment for um property prices. So first time buyers will will like that.
3: Yeah, definitely.
1: So it's two sides to a coin, I guess. Mm. Uh, well, yes, as always, thanks for that market update, Em. Uh, we'll certainly talk to you next time every fortnight, We have Emma Duffy joining us to talk all the latest in Australia's property market. So that's Emma Duffy, editor of Your Investment Property magazine. And don't forget, you can sign up for free to receive this magazine every other month. All you have to do is visit uh, the Your Investment Property website uh, and click join now and complete a two-minute survey. So uh, we've actually just released the latest edition. It's the October edition, which is out now. Uh, so you can receive that one. There's lots of great quality content in there. All you have to do is uh, complete a short survey about yourself and what you would like us to cover in our digital magazine. Um, so, yeah, you receive this magazine once every two months. And, and within that magazine, you can get exclusive content, market sentiment reports and research and more. Uh, so, yes, thanks again, Emma. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> thanks, Emma. Okay, time for our fiscal focus segment brought to you by InfoChoice, your choice of information on Australian consumer finance. Now, there's a new Australian finance book that's currently on shelves at the moment, and it's called Buying Happiness, Learn to Invest Your Time and Money Better. And it's by a financial educator and host of the hugely popular Australian finance podcast, Kate Campbell, who I'm very pleased to say, joins us on the savings tip jar right now. G'day, Kate.
0: Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys
2: thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts and time here today on the podcast kate um for the viewers who are watching on youtube uh here's a book uh we gave it a read over the last few days and uh, is very insightful so uh we'll ask you a few questions about the book so the title is uh buying happiness learn to invest your time and money better so can you really buy happiness Uh, share your thoughts there
0: so I think you can both agree that we can't just go and buy it from the supermarket, but there's a lot of things we can do with the way we use our time and money two very important resources. We've got to give ourselves a happiness boost. So one of the biggest things that came out in the research is just the way we spend our time on our relationships with other people, because that's a huge determiner of our happiness long-term. If we have quality relationships, if we are spending time with friends and family, and that doesn't usually cost very much. So sometimes we think the things that make us happy, are going to be really expensive things like a trip to europe because we've seen all of our friends do it this year but it mm. isn't necessarily the case there's a lot to be said for experiences over things but even small changes that can give us a happiness boost without spending too much more include like adding a bit of novelty so instead of just going to the same coffee shop before work today while well, going somewhere else or meeting someone new during that time and coffee is another one that comes up a lot because a lot of people demonize coffee in the personal finance world like if you Mm -hmm. cut out the coffee today Mm. you're gonna be able to buy a house tomorrow which we know isn't the case yes small things do add up but it's often what the coffee involves and for many of us the coffee is like having a coffee in the morning with our partner or going for a coffee break at work with our colleagues and the coffee involves a relationship as well and that's what adds the value it's not just that purchase but it's what that purchase involves so a big part of buying happiness is just adding a bit more to why we're spending time trying to figure out our money and trying to invest and sort our superannuation out. It's not just to build wealth. There's usually a reason behind it. Like we want to spend more time with our family or we want to have a sense of security so we can leave a job or relationship that isn't serving us. So I think that's like the main ethos of buying happiness is just that there's more to money than just the dollars. There's a lot more to it when it comes to our emotions and freedom and our feelings of happiness and fulfilment. So, I just want people to think about money a little bit more than just a number in the bank account.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess you know we can all have more money by by saving it and, and living like a hermit. But uh, you know, what's what's the point in, in in money if you can't go out and spend it on the on doing the things you enjoy? Uh, I mean, you you could get hit by a bus the next day and then you've <laughs> saved up all this money and haven't really lived your life. But then at the same time, you know, people that say live every day like as your last, well, maybe you should also save some money in case it's not. Um, but uh, anyways, on that note, um, can you tell us a bit, Kate, about uh, what inspired you to to write this book?
0: Yeah, so I've been talking about money and personal finance to anyone who will listen for over seven years now. But a few years ago, I read a a research paper from the US by some leading researchers in the field of money and psychology and happiness. And it was called, if money doesn't buy you happiness, you're probably not spending it right. And so that was really interesting because it pulled together so many of the different studies done. And I just went down a rabbit hole because I know there's a lot that needs to be done in Australia for financial education, but a lot of it isn't accessible to people. And sometimes it just seems very boring and stale. And a lot of people don't wanna be involved with money. And so this sort of gave me an angle to actually make the conversations a little bit more engaging because most of us wanna be happy or fulfilled in some sense. So thinking about, well, how can we use money as a tool to help us get there? Sure, if we've got a million dollars in our bank account today, it isn't gonna necessarily just like, like a switch and we'll be happy. But what are ways we can use that money to be a bit more intentional with our life? Because we only get so much in our bank account and so many hours in our calendar each month, but thinking about, well, how can we reprioritize what we're doing just a little bit more? And it doesn't need to be a overnight makeover. We're not just going to instantly transform our finances and our work and our relationships overnight, but thinking of something small this week. And even if it's just half an hour, you've always wanted to, start saving a little bit more. Well, this month, can you save $5? Like make the goal so small mm. that you're almost laughing at how small it is. It seems a bit trivial, but a lot of people get stuck at that point between learning and taking action. So it's just making that action so small, it's possible and that you can do it. And then you can slowly build your confidence from there because a lot of us sit on the sidelines consuming heaps of content when it comes to money and investing. And we don't actually take that first step because that gap seems really big. So That's one of my big tips to everyone just make that goal super small, make it easy to start with, and then you'll build up your confidence and you'll slowly start to scale that up. So it might be $5 this month, but in a year's time, you might be saving $500 a month.
2: For sure. Some uh, good entry-level advice there for someone to get started. So, um, I read, and I think you mentioned it very briefly, that you're actually in the Air Force um, and from such a young age as well. So uh, I guess at 17, 18, you're like a sponge and you're absorbing everything in the adult world. So uh, was there anything uh, from your time in the Air Force that taught you about money? Um, And I know there's like kind of that that whole meme that goes on about, you know, there's these young cadets that come in and they they suddenly have a paycheck and they're on base and they buy a new flashy car at, you know, 15% interest rates. Was there anything that stood out to you from your time in the force in in uh, in regards to um, finances and budgeting and so on.
0: There was certainly a lot of that going on. There was a lot of security over income, and so people were just using credit cards and buying cars on long-term leases because they knew they would have some security of income long-term, but that wasn't always the case. Like, a lot of people did end up leaving or didn't get through training and things like that, and it was during that time I was 17, I had a full-time income and I had very little living expenses because I was living on base, food was all covered. And that's a very rare situation for someone that young to have an income and not have any dependents or anyone to actually send that money to. And so the first six months, it was very much spend everything. And that was there was a big attitude of that. It wasn't really focused on saving. And so it was when I did my very first tax return and I realized okay, I'm an adult now. I got income for the last six months. I got quite a bit of it and I've got nothing in my bank account to show for it, except uh, maybe I've had some, some meals out and I've got a lot of stuff that I've purchased over this time. So that was kind of that flashbulb moment where I went, okay, I want to do a bit more with my money. I want to have a little bit put aside just in case something goes wrong or I want to do something else. And that ended up serving me really well because I didn't have to make too many big changes. Thankfully at the time it wasn't that hard to make big changes. I know once people have families and lots of expenses, making big changes becomes a little bit more challenging. But at the time I was in a position to go, okay, I can actually save some money each month. I don't need to spend (laughs) just left, right. I, I can put some money aside for me. And that sort of started me on my whole personal finance and investing journey
1: awesome now obviously investment is a big part of uh, what you talk about in the book and, and being comfortable taking on risk um what I'm wondering is uh if it's still worth investing when you've got a big debt such as uh, a mortgage to pay and um, you know particularly with interest rates as high as they are now you know, for example for me um, I was investing a lot in the lead- up to to buying a home I was you know I had about 50 percent of my wealth tied up in in stocks to try and accelerate uh, the growth in my deposit uh, but then once I got the house and I've got the the big mortgage with the the big interest rate um, I'm thinking every dollar is is probably best put into the offset account because it's a guaranteed uh, you know risk-free return tax-free return um, you know at the the interest rate, which is around 6%. Uh, whereas, you know, if I was to invest it in stocks, I'd probably need to have a, a return of about 9%, you know, for, for it to after tax be as good as putting that money into an offset account. So um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, are on that, you know, investing versus focusing on paying down debt.
0: A lot of people are having a, a really similar experience right now where maybe they were able to invest a lot a few years ago and now they're not able to invest as much anymore. And I think it just comes down to prioritizing. So if paying off your home loan and putting money in your offsets really important to you right now well if you want to keep the habit of investing alive how can you do that in a smaller way so some people will focus on paying down debt but they'll just keep investing five dollars a month in a micro investing app just to keep that feeling of being an investor, keep that habit going. Because if you've spent years building up that habit of being a regular investor and dollar cost averaging on a monthly or a quarterly basis, well, you want to keep that feeling of making progress there. So whether it's contributing a bit extra to your super fund, adding $5 a month to a micro investing app, still working on another savings goal you have, you can keep those habits going, even though you spend Uh, you're putting less into your investments and maybe prioritizing another goal, which would be paying off debt or putting money into your offset account. So I don't think it has to be either or, but different times of your life, you're going to scale back one goal and really focus on another one. So it's something that you've got to reassess on a yearly basis. I'd say a lot of us think we can put a 10 year financial plan into place and that's all well and good, but, your life is going to change. You might decide to buy a house. You might start a family. You might decide you want to change jobs or work overseas or take a year off. So you have to make sure that you can keep your financial plan fairly adaptable because things aren't just going to go exactly to plan for 10 years. I mean, I think that would be quite challenging.
2: For sure. And uh, just on putting five bucks in the micro-investing app, um, the, the fees could easily uh, eat away at that, which you did mention in the book. I uh, checked my raise account the other day and I was being charged $5 a month for my portfolio. So yeah, shop shop wisely there, I guess. Um, but what I liked about the book too is it didn't just talk about like, you know, do this, do that, you know, set up an emergency fund, all that boring stuff that everyone's kind of used to, um, it, it also talked about, you know, money, uh, culture, like the culture around money, behaviors, um, and relationships and stuff. So, um, one of the themes I, uh, saw, uh, especially towards the back end of the book was like auditing your life. So, Um, Let's talk about some uh, sort of, I guess, money and relationships and what are some kind of like uh, emerging taboos you see popping up these days, especially in a high interest rate environment and a lot of uh, younger people looking to um, get started on their investment journey?
0: I think money and relationships is still a challenging conversation. And I imagine you've both had conversations with friends and family and everyone has slightly different perspectives on whether bills should be split in a relationship split proportionately. So maybe they shouldn't be 50, 50, maybe they should be 70, 30, depending on if the incomes are different or sometimes you want to combine everything so that's still i feel like an emerging space where people are just working out where they stand because often people are coming into relationships these days with more assets they've already built up some superannuation they might have purchased a property on their own and so the conversations are quite different And i feel like that's still quite an emerging space and it really is an area where having communication is important because a lot of us if we haven't spoken to anyone about money before speaking speaking about it in a relationship is not just going to come easily to us. So thinking about, well, how can we start talking about how we were brought up with money? Because the way our parents and our communities talk to us about money often impacts us as an adult. Like if your parent had a really bad financial experience or, Um, lost money on a property or had a bad experience starting a business, often that will impact you in ways you're not quite realizing today. So even if you take some time just this weekend to reflect and go, what are some of those memories I have about money when I was growing up? What stands out to me? Did my parents have a really good experience with money? Was money always a source of tension, like with their fights about money or was money seen as a a great thing? And is that why I want to start a business? Because they had a great success starting a business. So just unpacking a little bit of that helps give you some of the language when you're talking to, your significant other or even a close friend or family member about money, you have more of a, a language and understanding. So you can share where each other are coming from. I think that's a really important thing to do because often we will just act on autopilot and we don't unpack, well, why do we think that's an important financial goal to work towards? A lot of us want to buy a house because maybe our friends and family have told us that's the only thing we should do with our money. But is that something we really want to do or are we just acting on autopilot and potentially making a decision that's not going to be the best thing for us right now.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. And as we know, money is one of the top causes of conflict in relationships. So uh, definitely worth, you know, having that chat. Um, now, the old saying, time is money. Uh, I've read in the book that, for example, you know, sometimes you might consider it worth spending money to save time, such as I think you said you were uh, moving house and you deemed it worth uh, paying a cleaner to, to do the, the, the bond clean. Um, so can you, yeah, just talk a little bit about where uh, people could be happy to, to pay more to save time?
0: Yeah. So there's actually research that shows that if we spend a bit of money to buy our time back, especially when it's on tasks that we don't really enjoy, potentially something like for me cleaning when I was moving house, that actually gives us a happiness boost as well. And it frees up some of our time. Now that starts to flip if we outsource everything in our life, because a lot of times, sometimes things that cause a bit of friction or aren't that enjoyable at the time, a lot of meaning and value to our lives so you've got to be careful there but it could even be something for you like your tax return if you've been angry and frustrated about doing your tax return for the last few years and have been putting it off every year that could be something that you go, okay well maybe this year i spend a bit of money and i outsource it to an expert accountant who's going to make my life easier make sure everything's done correctly and that's going to free up five to ten plus hours of my life and so that could be somewhere where you go okay well I'm going to have to spend a bit of money, but it's going to free up time and take this huge task off my mental load. So that could be one way where you think about, well, how can I use my money to add a bit of value to my life? For other people, it might be buying... Groceries, So having them delivered to your house, you don't have to worry about that task. Um, And for other people, maybe you are paying for a personal trainer instead of going to the gym, maybe they come closer to you. So just thinking about maybe small ways, even if it's just something very, very small, like paying for one meal, one home cooked meal a week from a local provider, something small that you can free up some time, especially if it's a task you don't enjoy that much
2: sure and that that tax one's a good timely reminder uh if you haven't done your taxes already because the uh deadline is looming uh kate campbell uh thanks so much for joining us on the savings tip jar podcast that's all we have time for today and uh your book is now available uh to purchase and uh it's a great read thanks kate
1: thanks for having me thank you very much kate cheers So that was Kate Campbell, the host of the Australian finance podcast and a financial educator and author of the new book, Buying Happiness, Learn to Invest Your Time and Money Better. Uh, so that brings us to the end of another episode of the Savings Tip Jar. Thanks again to our sponsors, InfoChoice and Savings.com.au. Uh, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next time. And thank you, Harrison, for that wonderful chat.
2: No, no. Thank you, Dom. Uh, oh, and you thanks too, to God. Kate as well. Uh can knock that one off my Goodreads list now um, and thanks to all, all listeners out there and thanks to Emma too for uh, sharing her insights into the you know the property world in uh, Victoria's uh, tax new tax so and if you have any thoughts or feedback on the podcast uh, feel free to uh, email us at inquiries with an e at savings.com.au um, and don't forget to subscribe uh, rate
1: review and
2: yeah give us, a, and give us a thumbs up tell your friends Talk
1: next week. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.